Thank you, worship team. Yeah, amen. Our praises fill the temple, and the Bible says that the Lord inhabits, is enthroned upon the praises of his people. And so we come seated before the enthroned God Most High to hear what he has to say to us through his word. So would you turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 41. And if you don't have a Bible, there's one provided for you right there in the back of the pew in front of you. You'll find this on page, uh, either page 786 or 827 of the pew Bible, depending on which printing of that you have. My sermon will actually come from a focal passage of uh, verses 23 to 41, the second half of the chapter. We'll read it all and I'll provide kind of a, a, a background, some context on it all. But the title of this morning's message is The Offensiveness of the Gospel. You know, offensiveness is something we ought to know a little bit about. Uh, we've sort of made it a recreational pastime in our culture. You know, uh, being offended. So, you know, people used to do things like scour the beach searching for shark's teeth. And now we scour the internet searching for things to be offended by. Uh, you don't even really have to scour it, do you? You just turn it on and uh, there's something there to offend us. We're familiar with the concept. And the key point here in this message is that the message of the gospel is offensive even when the messenger is not. Okay, the, the, the message of the gospel is offensive even when the messenger is not. Now let's acknowledge right up front that sometimes the messenger is also offensive. Okay, so there, there, are, there are Christians who are uh, offensive and, and, you know, can be critical and judgmental and so forth. Fortunately, none of them go to church here. Uh, but uh, thank the Lord for that. But, uh, but, but we'll, we'll pretend like they might just to make, you know, the offensive Christians feel better. But um, so... Uh, having said that, though, th th there, are, there are offensive believers, but some would lead us to believe that that is the problem. In other words, that it is the, the believer that is the problem, and that if we would just be kind and loving, the world would not be offended at the church or at the claims of Christianity and so forth. Um, and unquestionably, believers are part of the problem, but it's only part. Okay, because even Jesus himself said that if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And we see here in Acts 19 a vivid illustration of the fact that it is the message of the gospel that's offensive even when the messenger's not. So let's look there together now. And if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. 
And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there that does not know that the city of Ephesians is a temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them, be char- let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we thank you as always for the privilege of opening your word with the full expectation that we will hear from you in it. We do believe it's your word that is living and active, that it is relevant to every dimension of human existence. Lord, you know all the needs represented in the hearts of people here today and what we need to hear that ministers to us in the way you want to minister to us. And so we sit waiting to hear that. Lord, we ask that you would speak your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Just try to provide a brief uh, background here. You know that last week we were in chapter 18 where Paul was in Corinth and at the end of that wrapped up his second missionary journey and began the third. In fact, I'll mention that the map on the back of your bulletin um, is actually not updated and that's uh, totally my mistake for not sending an updated one um, in, but that's actually the second missionary journey. He began his third journey Uh, ended the second and began the third in verse 23 of chapter 18. Uh, But even on that map, you'll see Ephesus almost right at the middle of it. He started out on a similar path as he had begun the others, but then dropped down into Ephesus this time. He had left Corinth to return to Jerusalem and Antioch at the end of his second journey and actually made a brief stop in Ephesus. You may recall Priscilla and Aquila actually stayed there, maybe began to plant some seeds of, of ministry Uh, there among the Ephesian people. And Apollos um, actually came on the scene during that time too. He had come from Alexandria, a city in Egypt. And it says that he was a Jew, an eloquent man and competent in the scriptures. And he had heard and received the teachings concerning Jesus and actually seemed to know them quite well, although was a little bit deficient in his understanding of some things, namely that he knew only the baptism of John. And so it was that the people who were converted under his preaching also apparently only knew the baptism of John as we read at the outset of chapter 19. But Priscilla and Aquila had taught him more accurately as said, and then he actually went on to Corinth. And it was while he was in Corinth that Paul made his way back to Ephesus and and found some disciples uh, immediately upon arrival there. And so I want to just provide a a sort of summary, a brief sketch of the first half of chapter 19 here in setting the context for the second half, which is the focal part of our sermon. But basically, 
in a, in, in a nutshell, if there is a nutshell, it's a big nutshell, actually, the first half of chapter 19, but if I were putting it in a nutshell, um, it tells us that there was a great spiritual transformation that happened in the city of Ephesus. And, and essentially, at, at root of that is the power of the Holy Spirit and the renewing of their minds, okay, through consistent teaching over time. We see in the first seven verses there that Paul again happens upon or, or sort of has this providential meeting with some disciples who uh, seem to be converts of Apollos' preaching. And he says to them in verse two of chapter 19, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And now again, this could be sort of a message all on its own, but the question itself implies that one would know, right? That he's asking a question, if, you, if they had received the Holy Spirit, they would know it. Um, the, 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 they didn't imagine the scenario where uh, these 12 men had responded to an altar call at a crusade somewhere and came down and went back to a prayer room, filled out a little response card and somebody told them they would receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, they knew by experience, not by inference. And so it, so it is all over the book of Acts. We see uh, that evidence in Acts chapter two and chapter eight with the Samaritans, chapter 10 uh, with Cornelius and his family and here among the Ephesians that everywhere the gospel spreads to, there's evidence not only to the people receiving it, but to those looking on that this is legit, that God is really at work in the lives of these people. And so they say they haven't heard of the Holy Spirit, even that there is a Holy Spirit and at that they're baptized um, in the name of Jesus. And then Paul lays his hands on them. They, the Holy Spirit comes on them. They begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. So the, the, the Holy Spirit is operative here in a powerful way in the life of the church in Ephesus. And that's one of the takeaways there. And we see then that working out in a number of ways in uh, verses 11 through 20 there, where it says that extraordinary miracles are happening by the hands of Paul, even to the point that handkerchiefs or aprons that have touched his skin can be laid on sick people or people who are demon possessed, and they can be healed and set free from demons. And of course, there's this effort at, at counterfeiting or copycatting that that doesn't go well for these seven sons of Sceva. And the people around are seeing this happen and, the, and, the, and G, the name of Jesus is extolled, not the name of Paul. That's actually pretty noteworthy because it emphasizes that it's, it's things that are touching Paul's skin that then are being uh, laid on people to heal. But the people recognize this is the, the authority of Jesus over the powers of darkness at play here. The name of Jesus is extolled and people are coming to him and even begin confessing of their um, activities and sort of the dark arts, magic arts and that kind of thing, bringing books uh, of magic that they, they willingly burn and it says they counted it up and it's like 50,000 pieces of silver worth. And, and nobody knows really how much that's worth, but it's a whole lot. So, so for instance, uh, one, one um, New Testament commentator said, if, if, if the pieces of silver represented um, a denarius, which was a day's wage, which again, there's no telling if, if it did, but just to give you some context here, um, 50,000 pieces of it would be uh, enough to pay one person a day's wages for 137 years without a day off. Okay, <laughs> it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. And, and really the point there being, it tells us something about how entrenched 
the Ephesians were in magic and so forth. I mean, this is a dark place that is bound up in um, darkness that they're being set free from. That's really part of the point there. And we learned that in between there in verses eight through 10, I said that uh, this transformation comes, um, comes about by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also by the renewing of their mind. In verses eight through 10, it says, as usual, Paul goes to the synagogue. He begins preaching there. He's there for three months, which is better than the three weeks he lasted in Thessalonica. He's in the synagogue for three months before they've had enough. And he says, once again, I'll go to the Gentiles. And when he does, he preaches or, or teaches daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Um, that is either a lecture hall or a school building or something like that. But by some arrangement, Paul has acquired um, the right to teach there in that uh, public lecture hall daily for two years. And through that teaching over time and by the work of the Holy Spirit, um, this city is transformed. Their, their thinking has changed. He, she changes the way they live by changing the way they think. And of course, that's part of what's at issue when we, um, when we get down into the second half because uh, that's the context for the riot that breaks out. And we see in verses 23 through 41, two truths about the offensiveness of the gospel, which is, again, sort of the heart of the message and where I want to spend the remainder of our time. Two truths about the offensiveness of the gospel. And the first is, the message is offensive because it is disruptive. Okay, the message is offensive because it's disruptive. Look in verse 23. For starters, and it says about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So no little means is big, okay? <laughs> Just translate for you. In fact, I think the NIV says something like that, right? There's a great disturbance maybe or something like that. So there's no little disturbance here, but it is concerning the way. It's not about Paul. You see that right off? It's not the messenger. It's not that Paul did something himself especially Offensive. They didn't say uh, there was no little disturbance because Paul was so judgy or whatever, you know. He is just concerning the way that is the message um, of what he's preaching. And then verses 25 to 27 are what get at uh, the, the fact that it's offensive because it was disruptive. Beginning in verse 25, he says, these, this is Demetrius, the silversmith, brings together some of the craftsmen who make silver shrines of Artemis. He says, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. So this teaching daily in the hall of Tyrannus is having its effect. He's persuaded people and turned them away. And saying God's made with hands are not God's. In verse 27, and there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So it is because, once again, of what Paul is saying. It is the message. And, and from that, He's persuading people to change their way of life radically. And to these 
to this silversmith and these craftsmen, there is a danger, he says. It is a threat. It's a threat to them economically. It's a threat to them religiously. And it's a threat to them culturally. Sort of on the deepest levels of their whole way of living, the gospel is a threat. It is terribly disruptive. And that continues to be true right down to our day. We talked about in, uh, we looked in, in Acts chapter 17 when Paul preached in Athens about confronting American idols, the idea that, that all of us, even us, even we have idols of our own hearts, the things that we um, identify ourselves by, the things that we find purpose in and so forth, the things that we value most highly. And that the gospel in order to really have its work has to confront and topple those idols and all of the lifestyle that that is wrapped up around that idol worship gets toppled with it it's very disruptive but i tell you for those who receive it it's a wonderful disruption amen <laughs> it's a wonderful disruption for those who receive the grace of god but the message is offensive because it's disruptive and that's point number 1 number 2 we see that people act irrationally when their idols are disrupted. People act irrationally when their idols are disrupted. Look in verses 28 and 29 at this reaction. Um, I think if you changed in verse 29, if you changed city to college campus and theater to commons, this would, this would sound very contemporary, the whole rest of this passage. It says, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. Verses 30 and 31 there tell us, you know, Paul's friends uh, friends don't let friends go into riotous theaters, you know. So he said, don't, don't go into the theater, uh, Paul. And uh, even the Asiarchs, who were just some high-ranking officials of that region, said the same thing, urged them, you don't, you don't want to take this on. They kept him out of there. And then verses 32 and 34 continue. Let's pick up there in verse 32. At this irrational reaction, it says, now some cried out one thing, some another. For the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So notice the confusion they're crying out, and, and, and that most of them don't even know why they're there. It's just like somebody turned the garden hose on the hen yard, and all the hens just, just running around clucking. I mean, they don't even know what they're clucking about. But they're outraged because it's time to be outraged. Because outrage is admirable, right? Makes me look enlightened if I'm outraged about the right things. There's just great confusion and just irrationality to it. And then um, when, when they put forth Alexander, it says the Jews put forth this 
uh, this man, Alexander, motioning with his hands, he wants to make a defense. The word there uh, for defense is apologia, the word from which we get apologetics, that is making a reasoned defense of the faith. Now this, as far as we know, this is not even a believing Jew. This is a Jew. He's not a Christian. The, the, the mob here is not making any distinction. It says when they recognized that he was a Jew, then they started crying out. Now, the issue here is not that they are anti-Semitic. It's not that they hate Jews. The Jews have lived peaceably in, a, in Ephesus for a long time. There's a synagogue there, right? It's been there for a long time. This is where Paul goes in to begin preaching. It's not, it's not the fact that they have an, a, 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 a racial or ethnic sort of prejudice against Jews. What is it? It's that they, when they recognize he's gonna make a defense of the same position, what do they do? They shout him down for two hours, just crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. He tries to make a reasoned plea. Hey, let's be rational. Let's have a dialogue here. And they're just shouting their, their phrase, right? If they had had time to make picket signs, they would have probably had them. They are unwilling to hear an opposing viewpoint. That's exactly what's going on there in verse, uh, whatever verse that was, 34. They're just unwilling to hear an opposing viewpoint, so they shout for two hours to be sure there's no opportunity for that. I saw a, a tweet just yesterday from a pastor named Scotty Smith, and he said, the intensity of our irritation reveals the depth of our idolatry. The intensity of our irritation reveals the depth of our idolatry. Now, we could point that comment not only at the people in Ephesus or the unbelieving world, but right back at ourselves, right? We can connect this to that message uh, from Acts chapter 17 in Athens uh, where we're reminded that one of the reasons we don't confront the idols of the culture is because we worship the same idols. We got an idol problem in our own heart and we, that we need to deal with it. And the same can be true of us, that the intensity of our irritation reveals the depth of our idolatry about certain things. But that's what's, what's going on here is that the gospel disrupts our way of life at the level of our idolatry. And where the idolatry runs deep, the outrage runs high. And you can count on it every time. Where the idolatry runs deep, the outrage runs high. They act irrationally because their idols are disrupted. And fortunately, in verses 35 and forward, we read that uh, the town clerk actually takes his position of authority Seriously, I would say parenthetically, uh, I wish that um, campus officials on every university campus across the country reacted um, with the same sense of responsibility as the town clerk here. And that is that he says, among other things, you're being rash. Verse 36, these men, are, they've not said anything sacrilegious here, okay? He says, there's a proper way to voice your complaints in verses 38 and 39. And this isn't it. And, uh, and by the way, you're in violation of the law here. 
he tells them. So we, we are at risk of being charged with rioting. He knows they are rioting. <laughs> he says, we're at risk of being charged if anybody comes along and, uh, and wants to make an issue of this because what does he say there? Uh, there is no cause, in the end of verse 40, there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. There is no justification for this sort of outrageous, irrational behavior. And he quiets the crowd and disperses them. And so from all of them, and again, it's a, it is a vivid picture of the fact that it is the, the gospel itself that is offensive, not just the people proclaiming it. And what, what can we do sort of in response? How do we apply this knowledge or this truth? Well, uh, three ways that I've identified here, I'll try to go through quickly as we conclude. But number one, believe that the gospel really is true. That may sound so ele elementary that it doesn't even need to be said, but it does need to be said. Then we need to believe down in our heart that it really is true. It's not just true for you. It's not just what you believe, but it's true. In other words, we proclaim it not just as something I believe. We proclaim it as the truth. Acts 17, 30 um, and 31, remember this again, where Paul's preaching to pagan people and he says, hey, I see that you're very religious people. This God that you worship is an unknown God. Yeah, I know him. Here's the good news and the bad news. Now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness and he's appointed a man to do it whom he's testified to by raising him from the dead. That's the good news. Hey, I've got an offer for you and I command you to accept the offer. That's basically what he says to the people in Athens. It's a reminder, God doesn't offer to be added among, you know, to sort of on the shelf among people's other gods. He doesn't, he doesn't offer himself to be added to a list of things that are important to you or me. He reveals himself to be the one true God of the universe and commands all men everywhere to repent and worship him. Oh, that's offensive, isn't it? I just probably offended somebody here. I really didn't mean to. Um, although I guess I sort of did. I mean, I really wasn't trying to be offensive. You see what I mean? Uh, which is actually point number two. I'll get there in a second. But, um, you know, so to, to get this though down in our, sort of down in our hearts to understand this, the difference between the objective truth of it and not just subjectively being true for me. Um, you know, the IRS commands all Americans everywhere to file their taxes on April 15th. Can you imagine going to the accountant and saying, hey, I'd like you to do my taxes. Uh, can you give me some guidance there? Well, yeah, IRS says uh, file your taxes on April 15th. Now that's what I believe, uh, but you don't have to believe that. You know, just because it's true for me doesn't mean it's true for you. And you say, well, hey, April 15th, I'm planning on taking a cruise on April 15th. Now, who is IRS? Why should there be only one date to file your taxes? I mean, that's kind of arrogant, don't you think? Well, guess what? Public service announcement, there is only one date. I'll just let you know about it. When they send you those reminders in the mail, it's 
it's a pretty hard and fast date. But the point is, that's the, I mean, to an infinitely higher degree, that's the kind of authority and non-negotiable command that God issues to all the peoples of the earth. The, the, The gospel is true objectively. Okay, believe that. Number two, work really hard not to be personally offensive, harder than I've done uh, so far this morning, perhaps. But really, work, work really hard not to be an offensive person, in other words. Because the message is offensive, in that it is so disruptive, Try work really hard not to be personally offensive. Colossians 4, 6 says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer each person. Romans 12, 18, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another. And you may remember even in Acts chapter seven, if you've been with us for a while, Stephen, before he was stoned, stood before the council and it says they could see that his face was like an angel. This man that they're getting ready to stone. The message was so offensive, but he was angelic in his very countenance. Work really hard not to be personally offensive. And number three, uh, just accept the fact that people will dislike you. Just accept the fact that people will dislike you. This will be increasingly true. Um, if, if, you have the, if you have the notion that somehow um, you can go live um, confidently and publicly as a Christian in 21st century post-Christian Western civilization, um, you're you're just wrong. (laughs) Uh, That's going to be increasingly um, difficult, if not impossible to do. Um, That people will revile you, call you bigot and hateful and all kinds of things that aren't true just because of the truth that you and I proclaim and just expect that's part of what comes along with it. Jesus said, if the world hates you, just know they hated me first. Uh, That's part of what comes with the package. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, Paul said to Timothy, will suffer persecution and that will Uh, come by the grace of God. We aren't there yet in our um, country. But you have to ask the question, is it more important that you love God or that people like you? In your decision about how obedient you're going to be, is it more important that you love God or that people like you? Because the, the reason that's so relevant is if it's important, if it's so important, if it's highly valued for people to like you, you're gonna hold back on actually telling the truth. Maybe to somebody who needs to be saved by the truth that you're withholding. And so we go into the world as heralds town criers proclaiming good news on behalf of the king who's the one that we really seek to honor. And so we are, in spite of the fact that the message is offensive, uh, we, we ought to be ones who make it easier for people to express their dissent 
their disagreement. We ought to be ones that, that give a mob like the ones that rush into this theater no cause for acting irrationally, no cause for being outraged and confused and running around shouting us down and that kind of thing. They will still do it, mind you. But we ought, we ought to be the first to give them no reason to, but to encourage and engage in dialogue. But what we know at the end of the day is that there is one true God who has sent into the world the church to make disciples of all nations, proclaiming good news that he will set free those who are captive by the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus and faith in that name, that there is liberty to be found, salvation to be found in him. That is good news, but it is terribly disruptive news for the life that is built around the worship of other things. It's wonderfully disruptive, but it is offensive and infinitely good news. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that just by your great grace, Lord, you opened our ears to hear and understand the gospel. That those who have trusted in Christ, Lord, have had that moment of their very own. We have found it to be disruptive perhaps in our own lives. In fact, maybe there are ways in which our lives still need to be disruptive. We are plenty capable of rebuilding altars to other gods that have previously been torn down. And we need from time to time for our lives to be disrupted once again by the gospel and we invite you to do that. And Lord, I know that there may be some even sitting here today who have not responded in faith, in trust in Jesus. And Lord, I pray that even through their visit here today and encounters with people and um, your word and worshiping in your presence, Lord, by whatever combination of things that you would lead them to a knowledge of the truth. That Jesus, although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to grasp, something to cling to, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. He became one of us, lived like one of us, sinless unlike any of us, so he might pay the penalty for all of us who would believe. Father, would you remove the veil that has kept some people today, even from understanding that, that by responding in simple faith to the gospel, they might be set free, offended indeed, but wonderfully offended and set free by um, that message.
that reconciles them to the one true and great and glorious God. Would you be glorified as you do it, Lord, and make your name great in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.